0: Welcome to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh.
1: In the US, healthcare workers, got their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine just 12 months after the first confirmed COVID-19 case. How did scientists develop the new vaccine so quickly and how do we know they work? Dr. Bob Sizer, Associate Professor of Biology and Chemistry at Roosevelt University, will walk us through the process of creating a vaccine from trial to vial. A cell biologist by training, Dr. Sizer has nearly 20 years of experience teaching and sponsoring student research. This episode is the first in the four-part COVID-19 Vaccine Explained series. Our guest host today is Dr. Melissa Hogan, Dean of the College of Science, Health and Pharmacy at Roosevelt University. I hope you'll enjoy Their conversation.
2: Welcome to the first of our four part series on the COVID 19 vaccine. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I'm the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. In each discussion, we'll focus on a different aspect of the COVID 19 vaccine and I'll be joined by a faculty or friend of the college. Before I begin today's discussion, I want to give you a little preview of what's to come. Next week, our topic is Mythbusters. We'll be joined by Dr. Badria Nikoshevich, one of our pharmacist faculty, who will address common myths and misconceptions about the vaccine. Then, on February 24th, we'll be joined by special guest Dr. Tamara Marshall, She'll discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color. Our final session will take place on March 3rd with Dr. Jason Allegro, who will share his experience as an infectious disease pharmacist caring for COVID patients through the pandemic. All of the sessions will be streamed live from noon to one and will also be available on the Roosevelt University and Justice For All podcast, which can be found on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. During our live broadcast today, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. Feel free to type them into the chat and we'll save time to address them at the end of our discussion. Our topic today is called From Trials to Vials and we are joined by our own Dr. Robert Sizer. Dr. Sizer is an associate professor and director of MS graduate studies in Roosevelt's College of Science, Health and Pharmacy. A cell biologist by training, he has nearly 20 years of experience teaching and sponsoring student research in molecular cell biology, immunology, and biochemistry. Dr. Sizer serves as co-director of the Sensor Center for Innovation Midwest, which focuses on faculty development and civic engagement in biology education. Along with RU colleagues, Dr. Sizer is a recipient of the William E. Bennett Award for extraordinary contributions to citizen science from the National Center for Science and Civic Engagement. He is a graduate of Lawrence University and Duke University and joined the Roosevelt faculty in 2004. Dr. Sizer, we're so glad to have you join us today and help us understand more about these new vaccines and how they came to be. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What does it mean to be a citizen scientist?
3: Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much, Dean Hohen, for the invitation to participate. And uh, welcome to to everybody who's who's watching and, and listening in. I really appreciate uh, your joining us today. Uh, to address your, your first question, to me, being a, a citizen scientist or helping to develop citizen scientists uh, is about combining what we do as, as scientists with, our, with the responsibilities that we have to each other and to people in our country and around the world to be to be good citizens and participants in, in democracy so for me as a, as a cell biologist uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how life works at the cellular level uh, what's what cells are made of what they do how they interact with each other how they monitor the world around them and and, and mount responses and from what're at as an educator I think about those things and attempt to put them into the broader, context of how our understanding about science and our understanding about cell biology in particular is, is something that can help us solve and address the challenges that that science and scientific inquiry can, can approach. So there are certainly lots of things when you're working in health sciences areas where there are big challenges and are enhanced by our understanding. So I'm working with my students to help get that fundamental knowledge, to get to an understanding of, of how cells work through an exploration of the diseases and conditions that are affected in cell biology and to get them to be able to pass that information on to people so that they can have a better understanding too.
2: Wow, it sounds like we're gonna be in good hands today as we talk about vaccines. So we're gonna start with some really basic questions.
0: Sure. Because
2: I imagine most people listening don't have a really good foundation in immunology and cell biology. So can you explain to us what it means to be immune to something?
3: Sure. So in the broadest sense, immunity means some degree of protection from the consequences of of exposure. And you could think of what this might mean in the legal sense. In the scientific sense, it's it's somewhat more specific, but it's the same general idea. It doesn't mean uh, being immune to something, being immune to disease or to infection doesn't mean that you won't get exposed, that you wouldn't encounter something that could make you sick. The immunity means that because you have essentially have an immune system that's been, that's been trained or developed to deal with it, it's going to reduce the risk to you that you will suffer those negative consequences of being symptomatic, getting uh, seriously ill, and, and, and maybe even dying from the result of your exposure. So immunity is at the individual level about being able to avoid those consequences. We also talk about herd immunity and population immunity, which refers to the extent to which individuals in a large population have that protection and what that means for inhibiting the spread of an infectious agent. So at the cellular level, because again, i want to come back to cell biology all the time, at the cellular level, being immune means having a set of, of cells and tissues in your body that are able to, again, recognize and be able to mount a defense quickly against something like a virus when you get exposed to it so that you can avoid those consequences of illness.
2: So basically, it sounds like you could still be exposed, you could still encounter the disease, but you've got a superpower and you can fight it down. Does that sum it up?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing collection of cells and molecules that really have to talk to each other. And their basic, the basic mode of action is to be able to recognize what belongs to you, what's safe and part of your body, and what is, what is foreign, what is not part of you, just so that it can keep sort of keep track of these things and be able to, if necessary, mount to the defense that that would eliminate that invasion.
2: So I think this ties in really well to my next question. Uh, What does a vaccine do?
3: So vaccines are tools that we can use to help train our immune system to do its job. The example that I like to give is, is something like a, a fire drill. So a fire department that is practicing is going to have you know, all of its materials ready, its disposal, it's going to be ready. If the alarm comes in, they're not going to know whether it's a real fire or not. They need to have the same reaction and they need to do their best job at dealing with the threat as they as they perceive it. In the case of a fire drill, of course, it's not a real fire, but because of being able to mount that, have that response, being able to go out there and do what they would do as if it were a real fire, they're better prepared and they have some some knowledge, some memory that comes from it of what is going to work more or less effectively. And that's basically what a vaccine does. It's like a fire drill for our immune system that says, all right, this is what's going to happen when you might get exposed to some some pathogen like a virus and the immune system is going to mount that response. It's going to learn how to deal with that specific invasion with that specific threat. And it will hopefully also develop a memory of that so that when and if it sees it again, it's gonna be able to respond even more effectively and more quickly.
2: So can you tease that out a little bit better? How does a vaccine differ from say a treatment of a disease or condition?
3: So a a vaccine, again, is, is something that we're using to help us get protection in advance to sort of anticipate a potential exposure, a potential threat, versus some sort of therapy or medication that you might take after you get sick or after you get that exposure. They're not mutually exclusive, right? There are things that you can do if you get a vaccine, you might still get sick. You know, there's things that can help you deal with the symptoms that might come. But a vaccine is sort of more like something that we think of on a population basis. We want everybody to get vaccinated or we want people in vulnerable groups to get vaccinated. Whereas with treatments, we're thinking about, what happens on a case-by-case basis. We're thinking if someone lands in the hospital, what are the treatments that they need? If someone is you know, suffering long-term consequences, what specific things should be done for them? So it also kind of, it's also the distinction between what happens at the population level and what happens at the individual or case level.
2: Okay, so that makes sense. And I feel like we have a fairly good understanding in general about vaccines now, but there is so much. In the news about the COVID vaccines Mm -hmm. and i feel like people are are sort of being plunged into the scientific realm with with all the articles about the different types of vaccines and and how they work and how they're getting approved so i kind of want to jump into that and and tease out a lot of that information and the first thing i want to talk about is that mrna vaccine and how this is new technology for vaccines so can you start us off with what is mRNA? I think a lot of people have heard of DNA sure. and remember that from, you know, middle school, high school classes, but mRNA sounds similar, but what is it?
3: Yeah. So there's an, an image that uh, we can pull up on screen and it's going to show, I think it was maybe from one of your earlier questions. Uh, let's go back to the previous one, if we could, please, and I'll just I'll kind of, Talk through it and give a description for just in case if anybody is listening in afterwards, they can get a description. What this image shows is kind of a schematic of what's going on with the with the coronavirus. There is a an image that we should that most people should be familiar with by now, and it's a picture of what the SARS-CoV-2 virus looks like. First of all, SARS-CoV-2 is a virus, and COVID-19 is the disease that this virus is responsible for. It gets into our, our cells by kind of hijacking a protein, a receptor that sits on the outside of our cells. It can find its way in and its replication cycle relies on its ability to hijack other parts of our, of our cells and, and sort of force them to make proteins, make additional copies of the components of the virus. Those get packaged up and then the, the new virus particles can escape. So a viral replication cycle for coronavirus, like so many others, relies on that virus basically coming in, taking over a cell, and then using the machinery of our cells to make copies of itself.
2: Can I interrupt you for a moment? Sure. Is that different from other viruses, or is that pretty much across the board, any virus will come in, make more of itself by hijacking the cell?
3: Different viruses do use different Specific strategies, but this is the general sense of it. A virus is not a is not a living thing, but it is something that can get into our cells and take advantage of what we already have in place, the normal operations of our cells in order to make copies and to replicate and spread. So when we're talking about mRNA, mRNA is a molecule that is used universally throughout life as a template for making proteins, making another type of, of molecule. And In a virus like coronavirus, its genome, its set of instructions for making proteins, set of instructions for making viruses, is uh, all encoded in RNA instead of DNA. They're very similar to each other. But RNA is the direct template for making proteins. So what the SARS-CoV-2 virus does is it uses its RNA genome. It, It gets into the cell, releases that RNA, and it says okay, cellular machinery, you make copies of my proteins now, and those are going to get packaged together. When we're making a vaccine that is RNA-based, like the ones we're, we're hearing about now, that particular approach will rely on sort of the same idea that the virus itself will use. But instead of using the entire viral genome, instead of using all the instructional set for making new virus particles, the vaccine approach is taking just a little bit of that RNA, and it's modified, so it's engineered by researchers to have a specific sequence to make a specific section of a small protein. And that's what we see. I have another figure that kind of gives us a a glimpse of what the virus looks like. That's the next one in our series. And the target... The basis for this vaccine, by and large, is a protein that sticks out from the viral surface. It's called the spike protein, very aptly named. And it's the protein that first encounters our own host cells and serves as sort of the the key to get brought into our cells and then begin to take over. So naturally, it's a good target for a vaccine because we want our immune system to recognize the outside of the virus. We want it to recognize it as early and as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to try to prevent it from even entering our cells. So the vaccine is based on the mRNA that encodes for this protein, the spike protein. And so it
2: let, let me take you back a little mm-hmm. bit. Sure. Because I, I feel like you've given us a lot of information and I want sure. to make sure that I'm following <laughs> it. Um, so my understanding of regular vaccines prior to COVID is that you get either a piece of the killed, or you get the killed entity introduced, like the bacteria or the virus, or you get a little piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then your body sees that and it ramps up all of these things and gives you that superpower. And what you're saying, I think, for the mRNA vaccine is instead of actually like giving a whole bunch of a piece of spike protein or some other surface of the virus, we're actually taking a little bit of Encoding material and putting that into our bodies and telling the cells to make that little bit of the coronavirus, the COVID 19, that will then cause that immune system to sort of ramp up without giving us the disease. Is that right or am I missing a step?
3: That's right. All the vaccines, all vaccines are based on the premise that, that using something about the invader, in this case, the virus, to stimulate the immune system to make this to make the cells of this system say, "This is something that should not be here. This there's something up with this, and we need to deal with it," and to activate that response because it's already there at the ready for um, for most people. They've got the they've got the materials, they've got the cells already in place. And they're undergoing constant surveillance. We're constantly checking, you know, what's, what's right? What's wrong? Is everything as it should be? And when the system encounters something that, that constitutes something unusual that's recognized as not part of the normal human body, then we can mount a response. So all vaccines are based on this idea that you want to stimulate that response without having the threat of actual, you know, a viral. Replication cycle taking place. So in the case of the mRNA vaccine, the idea behind a vaccine is that again, you want to find something that is going to be is going to be immunogenic or is going to stimulate that immune response. And that in this case has been the spike protein. So by coming up with something that would allow our cells to make spike protein from the virus and display that for the immune system to see, that is going to, to bring about that immune response. And that that so far has been a pretty effective strategy.
2: And this is the first time we've done this with mRNA, right? This is the
3: first specific application for this technology, although the ideas about how we might use mRNA as the basis of a vaccine have been in development for quite a few years.
2: So if we're taking sort of the normal way that our cells work and using it to help amplify that spike protein safely to introduce our immune system to it. Is there any danger to this, right? Like what if your cells can't turn that off, right? They're making a whole bunch of spike protein, which is probably not dangerous because the rest of the virus isn't there, right? But mm-hmm. it seems like it seems like something we should at least wonder about, right? Like what if you can't turn that off and you have all these spike proteins that we just keep making?
3: Right. So the, the, the key to this is to be able to have enough of an exposure through vaccination in order to stimulate a robust immune response. But of course you want to avoid any potential for uncontrolled replication or for uh, overstimulation that would lead to the type of responses that people might actually have if they develop COVID-19. So it appears that for nearly everything we've seen so far, and especially for these mRNA-based vaccines, we're able to get a specific immune response to the to the material that is supposed to elicit that response, and that is the spike protein. There are always concerns about whether just the act of inoculation itself is going to is going to bring about an immune response that, you know, can give people symptoms, and make people sick. But it seems that both the way that we're delivering this vaccine component, the mRNA, and the response that comes from it, uh, is working out pretty well. Furthermore, with these RNA vaccines, that template that goes in to make the spike protein finds its way into our cells, but it does not go into the nucleus, it doesn't combine with our own DNA, it's there for a little while and eventually, not too, not too long afterwards, it gets broken down and all traces of it are gone. And the cells that make that protein from the RNA template, those are targeted by the immune system for destruction, so it actually is a, is a really good approach to have because it really lowers any possibility of an uncontrolled uh, reaction to the vaccine itself.
2: Oh, so it sounds like it sounds like this technology is really quite adept at using both our own ability to make this protein to create the immune response but also using inherent mechanisms to get rid of it so it doesn't sort of go off the rails and give us too much of what we need.
3: That's right. That's right. So when you hear about, you know, dosage amounts, when you hear about whether you should get one shot or, or two. This is all about our process of trials and tests in order to figure out what the most effective way of administering a vaccine is, again, to ensure safety without doing too much or too little. And it's, it's fine-tuning it in order to bring about the best possible protection.
2: So I understand there's a lot of other vaccines in the pipeline, too, and they're not all made from mRNA. In fact, just the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are mrna Correct.
3: Um, yes, those are the two major okay. candidates right now. Mm-hmm.
2: And so, what about the other vaccines that could be coming out soon? What, how mm-hmm. do they work? How, what are they made of?
3: Sure, we have an image for uh, for this that I can refer to as well. You had actually mentioned earlier in our conversation some of the other sort of traditional methods, and this you referred to as as traditional vaccines that contain either an entire virus or parts of a virus that have been killed or attenuated in some way so that they are actually the real thing, but they have been inactivated and can no longer replicate. So they serve as the basis for stimulating the immune response without the challenge of having to deal with increases in in viral particles over time. The types of things we've been talking about with respect to the mRNA vaccine and the DNA vaccines and so on, these are called non-conventional or newer generation Vaccines, and they're based on even more sophisticated ways of getting only those parts of the virus, the viral genome, or even proteins that are going to, again, stimulate the immune response, but without having anything else that could potentially cause cause problems or overreactions. So what you're seeing in this image are a few of those different things. The mRNA is there in the center, and then there are things like viral vectors or a direct DNA vaccine. And these are ways of introducing that template material in to just make a little bit of that spike protein, but we're just delivering that material, delivering that template in different ways.
2: So just to bounce off that a little bit, I think you know, the traditional vaccines, we've used this technology before We've talked in depth about mRNA, but tell me a little bit more about how the DNA vaccine works in terms of, you know, again, how do we know it's safe? It's not going to change our DNA. How exactly does that work?
3: So this one's been around, this idea has been around for a while as well, and it's used in different contexts. Being able to actually package viral DNA as the basis of the vaccine into another virus particle sounds like kind of an odd strategy, but it works very well. We know enough about viruses of all different kinds now that we can have the ability to develop these as what are called delivery methods. So there's ways of getting things into our cells in a way that's going to be safe, it's going to be effective, and it's not going to lead to the types of complications that one might have if you are, again, being exposed to a live virus. So for these so-called viral vectors, that vector means a way of transmitting, a way of getting something into our cells. And it doesn't mean any higher risk of infection than some of the other methods that, you know, that we've that we've talked about. The idea, once again, is finding a way to get something that is going to help stimulate that immune response and get it into our bodies, into our cells safely, and uh, without that risk of overreaction.
2: So just sort of from a pure technological standpoint, mm-hmm. is this mRNA? or the DNA, is that superior to our older technology? Should we be trying to get one of those vaccines instead of one of the other ones that might be coming out later, but uses older technology?
3: There are a lot of advantages to having uh, these mRNA-based vaccines. Uh, Among them is is their simplicity, the speed with which they can be produced, the fact that it doesn't You know, rely on other technologies or other things that traditionally have had to be added into vaccine formulations that, you know, might in very limited cases cause slight allergic reactions or other types of things like that. So it's a pretty safe and effective technology to use, does have its own limitations. But the important thing about the important thing about these vaccines in general and as a class is that they're all subject to extensive testing, validation and approval processes so that by the time it gets to pharmacy, the hospital, wherever you might go for vaccination, it has been through a lot of oversight, and it is you know we're as sure as we can be that it's going to be something that is safe for you to take, and that you know any risk of of complications from getting it is far exceeded by the benefit of having that protective immunity through the vaccination.
2: So, bottom line, would you say that whatever vaccine is available to you? regardless of the technology behind it you should take it.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, for anyone who's considering this keep a close eye on, you know, your own eligibility, try to get whatever information you can about where and when something might be available to you and when you when you do have the opportunity, it's certainly good to find out and you should be informed about what you're getting, but you can rest assured that it's going to be safe for you. You don't have to be selective and say, "Oh, I definitely want to get one or one or the other."
2: Okay. So, this brings us to the next set of questions that I want to talk about, which is just the whole approval process, especially with these vaccines. This seems like, I mean, it's, it is that these were approved in record time, right? We've never Mm -hmm. approved vaccines this quickly. So how did that happen? Did they cut corners? Like how did they, how did this come to be?
3: It really is fortunate. And it, I think it kind of gets to the, to the idea that, you know, chance favors the prepared. information that we have that allows us to develop effective vaccines is information that was available fairly early on and was widely shared. And that's information about what actually makes up the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. What is its genetic sequence? What is in that template for making its proteins? So that sequence was obtained pretty early on by people who you know who identified it and who studied it and they shared that information so that researchers and companies could start to develop a vaccine candidates based on that information so that came out before the end of 2019 early 2020 and went into vaccine development very early on using these technologies that had been developed and either used for other types of vaccines or used for other applications and could now be applied to the the specifics of, of making a covid 19 vaccine so that happens over a couple of months, goes pretty quickly. And fortunately, those candidates were, were able to go into a variety of trials, both preclinical trials, which are, you know, laboratory experiments to develop the technologies and make sure everything's working and can be, and the production works, doing trials with animal models to see if the immune system of You know, a mouse, for example, would would respond in the way that that we might hope if it gets infected and doing those sorts of things and then moving pretty readily into the the clinical trials where we have human subjects as volunteers and increasingly larger numbers and and groups who then get the vaccine. So this all happens basically over about eight eight or nine months. And... um, it all happens well under the under the watchful fly of regulatory agencies like the FDA, which are saying, you know, okay, you want to make this vaccine. Are you doing it properly? Do you have the right procedures in place? Are you taking care of the people who are in your clinical trials uh, and ensuring that, you know, that you're conducting everything effectively? So there's quite a process that goes into this. And it just happened very rapidly because everybody understood the, you know, everybody understands what's what's at stake and the nature of of the pandemic.
0: You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University.
2: So essentially, we were, especially with these new technologies, we were ready to make these vaccines, and we got the information that we needed quickly to make them. And then the trials preclinical in labs, and then into people, the clinical trials sort of just went almost without a hitch, without delays that we would normally see. Were they done in as many people and for as long of a time as we normally do uh, uh, trials to approve medications?
3: So these were done at, at a pretty significant scale across the globe. So there were there were thousands of participants in the United States, thousands of participants in Europe, and other parts of the world. Each place, uh, each uh, each country, or the EU, or China, or wherever, are going to have their own regulatory bodies, their own way of approving. But the the, the trials themselves have continued with quite a few participants they ramped up really really quickly and it certainly isn't any less than what you'd have for other types of approvals it was just a matter of doing it more quickly and fortunately the data that emerged about the design of the trials the safety of the trials with very very few exceptions that may have delayed for you know for a couple of weeks those those trials did, did go off uh, and did continue quite quite well and the data that came out early on uh, gave a strong indication that the vaccines were and are effective and that, by the way, that, that process continues. Just because a vaccine is, is now being available for large-scale distribution doesn't mean that it's not subject to monitoring, to quality control. And there's a whole system for collecting information about safety and efficacy throughout the process. And if there's any reason to stop the vaccination or to make any changes, then, of course, that's, that, that, that will be supported by the evidence that we have.
2: So as more and more people get vaccine, we're getting more and more data about the safety Right, so the FDA is still, or the drug companies are still monitoring how actual people who have gotten the vaccine are doing.
3: Well, that's right, and that that just extends, you know, the responsibility that everybody has, and the, the number of stakeholders that are that are here. Uh, in a way, in a way, we can think of this as, you know, as a large ongoing trial, not to determine whether something is going to work or not, but to find out, you know, how effective it is over the long the long term. Is there going to be a need for having more regular, you know, booster injections, is it is there going to be long-lasting memory? There's no doubt that they work, but by the time they make it through that approval process, but we want to know more about what it's going to look like going forward. And that's the, you know, that's the reason for thinking of this as, as something that's, you know, a long-going uh, an ongoing long-standing trial.
2: So there was a lot in the news about these two vaccines being, say, 94, 95 percent effective. What exactly does that mean?
3: Uh, so that's a pretty straightforward measure for just figuring out how many people get sick, uh, can end up contracting COVID-19, based on their participation in either a group that got the vaccine or that did not. Get the vaccine that participated in the trial but received a, a placebo so that that placebo would be still getting an injection but not with the rna vaccine or with whatever is the candidate and then they just follow people over time they look out over weeks to months uh following their their visit uh, and participation in the, in the trial and they say how many people are getting sick with COVID-19 and it was pretty striking for the data that came out for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in late November and in December, uh, where they basically could point to a, a graph and say, you know, we've got essentially nobody who was is, who is vaccinated getting COVID-19. And a very consistent increase in the number of people who participated in the trial got the placebo and ended up, um, you know, having uh, up contracting it. So when they say 90% effective, that essentially means that 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 percentage of people who were who were inoculated got the vaccine according to that whatever dosage were protected and had that protective immunity.
2: So I've heard that in the studies, they, they tracked who got sick, but they didn't keep track of whether or not someone maybe was asymptomatic and mm-hmm. could have been spreading. Is that right? And if so, is that good enough?
3: Yeah, so that's one of the big challenges with this virus and with the disease that it that it causes. Lots of concern about asymptomatic spread, as well as the concerns about the variation, the individual variations for people who who get it. So that's our concerns always have to kind of go up against this this background. And that's why we can't think of a vaccine as being the only line of defense or the last line of uh, the last thing that will be that will be necessary in order for us to to conquer this this virus. Vaccines are designed to help keep individuals safe and to help stop the spread of disease. They are not going to be something where we can say completely 100% that you will not ever be exposed or that you could not potentially transmit that, that virus to somebody else. Um, and that's always important to keep in mind.
2: It seemed like when the first news of the vaccines being approved and, and starting to be distributed came out, it was it felt like such a relief, right? Like this was finally going to end. But then we hear about these virus variants, and are these vaccines going to work? Do we, do we have to go back to the drawing board? What, what's going to happen with that?
3: Yeah, We have a, a figure, I think, that shows a little bit of information about what it means to get population-level immunity. And I think what I'd ask anybody to do is, is to consider the alternatives, which are not hypothetical. It's what we've been living with for the past year. There's a figure here that that shows three different scenarios and three different potential uh, three different end outcomes for the spread of of infection. When you don't have immunization and when you don't have social distancing, which is what we have uh, dealt with initially and which is is still a concern in a lot of places, the the virus will spread f- freely among among people. So that the outcome over time is that everybody will either have acquired immunity because they've you know, survived their exposure, survived the bout of it, or they will, they will not have survived, and that's that's a really sobering thing. But that unfortunately is 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 what we've been grappling with. When and you have pause models- for a
2: second, because that image is really stark. You know, and I hope that folks who are listening to this can go and see this graphic on the website, because for that scenario that you're talking about, that we've lived with, and that some areas are still living with you see that spread sort of just goes through the whole population and the end outcome shows a significant portion of that population ending up deceased, right? Dying from the disease because we didn't curtail the spread. So I just, I want to point that out because that is, that is the most stark outcome. And that's unfortunately what many places are still facing.
3: That's right. And when we are able to, and to the extent that we have been able to put in interventions like social distancing, like mask wearing, et cetera, we are acting essentially as a a stand-in for the vaccine by blocking exposure. So we can't protect against exposure effectively, but we can try to limit exposure to the extent possible. So that slows the spread of infection and it tends to isolate individuals who have been infected so that they can recover and they can uh, reduce the likelihood that they'll they'll give it to somebody else so there the outcome is a number of people who are still healthy a number of people who have recovered and acquired immunity and unfortunately still some deaths that's kind of been where we're where we've been at for for the better part of the last year and we've seen how much that varies by region depending on the, the the ability and the willingness to adhere to those social distancing and other types of interventions the outcome that we want is is what's shown in the in the last panel where we have effective and widespread immunization so that people are protected from the consequences of exposure if we combine that with the means that we're already taking the steps that we're already taking to limit that exposure in the first place then you can have a situation where the majority of people are immune have that protective immunity and that the people who do not have protective immunity are not subject to exposure. So that's what we're talking about with this idea of herd immunity so that you have enough people with protective immunity to also protect the people who are not able to uh, develop it for whatever reason so that they are essentially act as a buffer around those who are not.
2: So I have one question about this and then I want to bring us back to that question about the variants. How many people need to either have naturally acquired immunity or be vaccinated in order to get to that scenario where it's really not spreading. We have very limited or no deaths from it.
3: For every different virus or every different pathogen, it can be it can be slightly different. The general number that's put out is about 80%. Uh, 80% of a population needs to have either naturally acquired immunity or that acquired through vaccination, which is also a form of naturally acquired immunity. It's just that you're getting help from the vaccine to do it. We would hope that it's at 80% or, or lower. There are some scenarios depending on the availability or the, um, the spread of, of other variants and so on the speed at which something moves through the population where we might want to have closer to 85 or 90% herd immunity. So people who who model this or are modeling the spread keeping track of what's going on are coming up with different scenarios and targets. Generally speaking though the objective is to get everybody that benefit of protective immunity through vaccination as quickly as possible and that's not going to that's not going to change. What will change is perhaps some specific strategies to prioritize different people and, and in different places
2: so a couple more questions before we get back to the variants it seems like you're making a really powerful case not just for the individual benefit of vaccination but also for sort of an obligation to society for vaccination is that would you say that that's accurate
3: so if we can go back to this idea, of the, the citizen scientist and to understanding these big issues or understanding science you know through our exploration of these big issues I think that with, with an issue as big as, as this and as pressing as this, we have not only a responsibility to kind of find out about it and, and become educated, but I think we have a bit of a moral imperative as well to act on that information that we have that we have obtained. So there's there's another image that I think I have in the, in the slide deck of what I call the Swiss cheese model for pandemic defense. I didn't come up with this figure, someone else did, but I think it's a great way of kind of envisioning this. What it shows is that you could think about your defense to a respiratory virus as a block of Swiss cheese, which doesn't seem to make any sense. But Swiss cheese has holes in it. But if you look at a block of cheese, it's it's solid all the way around. You can tell where the holes are, but you can't see through it. So when you slice that cheese, there's there, there may be holes, but the whole thing together makes a solid block. So what this means in terms of the defense is there are many different things that we are doing and will need to do going forward that will help us deal with the the pandemic by limiting the spread and increasing the progress toward herd immunity. So everything that we do as individuals, from wearing masks to practicing good good hygiene to social distancing, uh, and everything that we do collectively, like promoting vaccination, asking for financial assistance and for policies that can help people maintain those personal uh, responsibilities and keep people safe. All those things work together and all those things are necessary. Vaccines are not the only and last thing that we will do that will take care of this. We still need to do them in combination with many others. So I think that's the point that I would want to bring home to to anybody, that we are really fortunate to have uh, been able to develop vaccines over time, over a relatively quick rapid time that are really going to help us move toward this goal, but it's still going to have to come along the context of all these other types of inter- interventions and personal and shared responsibilities to each other to help us get through this.
2: Wow, that's a really powerful statement. That image is really, really compelling, right? And again, I hope folks who can't see this will go to the website and take a look at it, to the roosevelt.edu podcast. But you know, just to show how everything that we're doing works in combination. Not one single thing works by itself. I'm going to bring us back quickly to that question about the variants. Should Mm -hmm. people bother getting the vaccine if it's shown to be less effective against the variants?
3: You'll see a lot of information. There is a lot coming out now because there's a concern about this. Being a a virus, even though it is not alive, the genome, the set of instructions for the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, is subject to change through mutation and the more opportunities the virus has to spread the more hosts it has the more possibilities there are for these mutations to take place that could potentially affect our immune system's ability to recognize it and provide and sort of put out the strongest possible response so you're hearing now about new variants emerging in different places and becoming more prevalent in different places and you're also hearing about tests and questions about how effective the vaccines that have been developed will be against these new variants. So if the spike protein that you actually end up encountering through an exposure is the same spike protein that your immune system saw when you got vaccinated, you should still be okay. And if it's different enough, well, there might be some concerns about it. By and large, though, what we've seen is that uh, the vaccines that have been developed so far have been pretty effective against against any variants. So again, for an individual, I would not say don't get vaccinated if you have the opportunity to do so. I wouldn't say that because of concerns about variants. I would say, go ahead and get vaccinated. And if there is a need, an opportunity to get another vaccine somewhere down the line that could help better protect you against a wider range of viral variants or possibilities, then go and get that one too. So it isn't necessarily one thing that you're gonna do once and that's good forever. And that's not really the case for a lot of vaccines anyway. Other things are subject to those same types of changes.
2: That's right. So what I understand is we, even without the variants, we don't know yet if we're going to need, say, an annual booster like we do with flu shot. right? So it's possible we're going to be facing this for a long time and just managing it with vaccines.
3: That's right. So you mentioned before, you know, the relief and the the sometimes, you know, exhilaration that people have at getting these vaccines. And I think that is fantastic because it means it is an important milestone for us in an, in our understanding and our response to this pandemic. But I also think that, you know, we need to think about this over the long term and there will be continuous, you know, reformulation, monitoring, you know, keeping track of, of people and their symptoms and whether they've been vaccinated or not. So this is one, you know, one battle in a long campaign.
2: So we're coming up toward the end of our time, and I want to be sure we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask you one more question before we go to audience questions. When are we going to get back to normal, right? If I get vaccinated, can I go to work without my mask? Can I go shopping without worrying? Do I have to keep using hand sanitizer and maintaining social distance, or am I good to go once I get that second vaccine?
3: Sadly, no. So if you get vaccinated, you have taken an important step towards keeping yourself safe and contributing to the protection of, of everybody that you might come in contact with. We do not know enough about asymptomatic spread. We do not know enough about that uh, the potential for exposure to be able to say that, you know, you're good to go and you need not take any other interventions. So uh, we you need to still keep wearing a mask, you need to still keep thinking about social distancing and hygiene and all these other things that we've been that we've been doing because we are looking to increase the odds or decrease the odds that you know the virus will be will be spread and increase the probability that people will have protection if they do get exposed. So best way to do that is the Swiss cheese defense, the vaccines plus all those other personal responsibilities that we've been asked to take on over this time.
2: Okay. So I guess that makes sense. It's a little disappointing, but I guess the most important thing is that we just reduce our risk and the risk of those around us. Absolutely. Um, So now I'm going to turn to some audience questions that are coming in through the chat. And the first one is about the status of efforts made by Roosevelt University specifically to become a vaccination site for our U members. And if you don't mind, Dr. Sizer, I'll take that question. Please do. So lots of folks have heard that we have offered to administer the vaccine ourselves. We have nursing faculty and students, pharmacy faculty and students who are capable of administering the vaccine. We even have freezers on hand Um, at this point. I don't have any updates about that. We have not become a site. So I would encourage anyone who is eligible to go ahead and get that vaccine from the county, from their doctor's office, from their pharmacy. As soon as we have an update to provide on this, we will. But I wouldn't I wouldn't ask anyone to wait to get their shot at Roosevelt. If you can get it somewhere else right now, get it. And if we are able to offer it directly to those in the university who haven't gotten it at whatever point, we will let everyone know. Um, Next question, Jose is asking about something many are facing, and this is, how do I talk to skeptical friends, Millennial and Gen X, to help them accept and get the vaccine?
3: That's a very good question. And my first response is to is to say uh, come back in the weeks to follow because you'll be getting a lot more information from my colleagues at Roosevelt about uh, vaccine hesitancy and what's sort of like in practice for people. So that is certainly a concern and we want to be able to address it. I would say in in response that there is always a degree of skepticism, and skepticism in, in can be can be viewed as people wanting to learn more and people being receptive to information that can help them with a the decision so it can be good news if someone is not just rejecting something out of hand and if they're asking questions that gives you an opportunity to help guide them toward a decision that's based on the available evidence so people's acceptance is going to be driven by the you know uh, by the influence of their their friends and family uh, so if you can tell them about own personal experience. If you can tell them about the information that you have regarding, you know, the safety of the of the vaccines. If you can tell them about the sort of parallels between, you know, getting vaccinated and other types of responsibilities and actions that we can take that are, again, both self protective and uh, protective of those around us. Um, I think those might be good ways to talk to somebody about it to help them, you know, weigh the the, the risks and the and the benefits.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think probably there's some people, particularly younger age groups, who don't feel as susceptible to COVID-19 and don't feel as at risk. And so, you know, if you think of the vaccine as only a, a personal responsibility, they may be weighing their risk and what they perceive as possible risk of the vaccine and not thinking about the need for herd immunity, the need to protect their family members that are vulnerable and to protect their community. So we have a question from Katrina about the vaccines other than Moderna and Pfizer, which are mRNA vaccines. Specifically, she's wondering about the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines and what they're made of. Mm -hmm.
3: So these are also vaccines that are kind of based on newer newer technologies and newer ways of of delivering the template information into, uh, into our cells and they have been engineered for that purpose of being able to get things in safely and to get the desired response from our own cells, including our own immune system, without causing other complications. They're not based on the same technology, specifically as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, but they're based on similar ideas of, of taking just that bit of template and getting them into our, our cells so that they can, they can make the spike protein and have that be the basis for, for immune recognition. Um, there are other vaccines in the pipelines that are developed, maybe in different countries, and being approved for use there. That actually deliver the proteins themselves, already having been made uh, outside the body, or that actually have this more traditional approach of of taking a vaccine, or excuse me, taking a virus and growing it in the lab and then killing it and activating it and delivering that 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 uh, that virus in.
2: So the next question comes from Katie, and this is more related to the trials that were done. So she points out that it seemed as if not many people in the placebo groups in the clinical trials actually got COVID-19. And can we still be sure that these results are statistically significant?
3: Well, the good news is that not many people in the placebo groups got COVID-19. The way these trials are conducted, we're talking about by the time they get to these phase three trials in which they report and they present their data for, for approval, we're talking about Thirty to fifty thousand people being included, so that could be, you know, fifteen to to twenty five thousand people in, in each group. So the numbers that they saw for the infection rate among people who received the placebo and the infection rate among the, uh, people who received the, the the vaccine those were quite significant. So. I don't just mean important, I mean statistically significant, uh, that they could verify that uh, that difference was large enough to merit the, uh, the use of the, the vaccine, especially when weighed uh, against the reports of side effects and complications of inoculation and vaccine administration itself, which were, which were quite low.
2: So we're coming up on the end of our time. And I have just a couple more questions for you, Dr. Sizer. Have you been vaccinated yet? I have not. And why not?
3: Um, I am not yet in an eligible category, so I'm waiting.
2: So you're not waiting for more data?
3: No, I'm not waiting for more data.
2: Okay. So will you get it when it's available to you?
3: Yes, I will. Absolutely.
2: Okay. Do you know anyone who's gotten the vaccine yet?
3: Yes, sure. I have friends and family members who who have either completed uh, both doses of an mRNA vaccine or are between uh, doses right now.
2: Okay. And so... For close friends or family, what was it like? Have they shared with you their experience?
3: It was it was a lot of the, the things we were talking about earlier. The sort of the sense of relief. It is it has been really nice for people to be able to sort of take this concrete step because they understand what it means. It is this idea of being able to sort of you know turn the corner and you know have something that that can help uh, to be a part of something that can help, but also. The people I know have been really sort of pragmatic about it. They're like, all right, so let's get on with with business. Let's keep wearing our masks. Let's keep you know, being safe and just keep fighting.
2: Wonderful. It looks like we're out of time. Dr. Sizer, I want to thank you for this great discussion. I feel like we've gotten into a lot of really important scientific details as well as sort of moral issues around the vaccine. And I feel like I just have a much better understanding of where we are with this vaccine now.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: And this concludes the first of our four discussions on the COVID-19 vaccine. Tune in live next week, Wednesday, February 17th, from noon to one. We'll be talking with Dr. Vadria Nikoshevich about myths and misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccine. And remember, you'll be able to find this session and every session in our discussion series on the official RU podcast and Justice for All. Thank you and see you next week.
3: Bye everyone, stay safe.
0: And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.